This audio recording is presented by New City in downtown Orlando. Our sermon text this morning is Psalm 32. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. This is God's word. Be seated. So we've uh, entitled this current sermon series, Psalms, uh, Worship in Every Circumstance. And of course, by the phrase, uh, every circumstance, we mean uh, the circumstances of life, not just the ups and the downs, uh, but, but the level places uh, that make up the majority of life. So in other words, our lives are not uh, uh, exclusively uh, lows and highs, but uh, lots of normal places uh, to which we can compare lows and highs uh, to. And so in this series, um, we're, we're going through the Psalter a bit, and we're learning uh, how the, and seeing how uh, the Psalter is teaching us uh, to worship God and to relate to God and surrender to God and pray to God, uh, no matter what's going on in our lives, those level places, those low places, and those high places. And so we've said multiple times that these 150 psalms uh, in the Psalter tend to fall into genres or categories. We've said that each of these genres ha- has a circumstance of life that it, it best applies to, or, or these genres have a, have a time in the path of life in which they are best uh, studied, owned, and prayed. So we're about five weeks, I think, into this uh, series in the Psalter. And, and we've studied uh, in, in Central, we've studied one Psalm of Meditation. Downtown, we've uh, studied two. Uh, and uh, excuse me, here we've studied uh, two as well as downtown. I got confused with Psalms of Confidence. But, but Psalms of Meditation, so like one or 119, uh, those are best applied and best sung and best owned and best thought through. Uh, when you're on the level places of life. Uh, But then again, we've studied Psalms of Confidence. So Psalms of Confidence, like 23 or 27, for example. Again, we've studied one Psalm of Confidence in the morning, uh, two at night. Uh, Psalms of Confidence are best studied and prayed when the future is particularly uncertain and when that uncertainty is making you uh, anxious. The Psalms of Confidence take us back to the Lordship and the Goodship and the grace of God. But starting today and moving forward, we're going to begin uh, in this series uh, to study those genres that apply to highs and lows, not just the flat places or the somewhat confusing places. And so today we're going to start uh, in the genre of repentance. Uh, 
I know it's an exciting topic uh, for Mother's Day, uh, but I picked the easiest psalm of repentance to preach this morning as a gift uh, to you. So in the the coming weeks, it's just going to get better and better. Uh, The psalms of repentance, the so-called penitential psalms, are best applied to life when we are brought low uh, by our own sin. And so there are, of course, times in life where natural causes and other people's sin push us down and take us low, uh, but the psalms of repentance uh, will lead us and instruct us when we're low and when we're in the depths because of our rebellion, because of our failures. And so this metaphor, this visual of life being a path that is level, that is high, that is low, it's not an illustration I came up with for this series. It's actually the main metaphor for life in the Bible. It's the main metaphor for life in the Psalter. Uh, And so in line with that, Psalm 130, which is a classic psalm of repentance, 130 starts out this way, out of the depths, out of the low place, I cry to you, O Lord, hear my pleas. For mercy. So that's enough on the series. Let's start thinking about uh, Psalm 32. This is my gift to you, moms. This is not a psalm of repentance. Uh, This is a contemplation on repentance and an instruction to repentance. So, in other words, this is not a psalm that David prayed uh, when he had blown it big time. Uh, This is a psalm that David prayed sometime after he had blown it big time, had tried to avoid repenting, and finally gave in and repented. And so in this contemplation on his own repentance and this instruction to us in repentance, we're going to see three things. Uh, The call to repentance, the case for repentance, and the cost of repentance. The call to, the case for, and the cost of. Okay, so first, uh, the the call to repentance. If you think about it, uh, there are basically three choices available to you uh, in dealing with your sin. Three choices available to me in dealing with my sin. And, and by the way, I should just stop now and just kind of, kind of say this. When I talk about sin uh, in this sermon, I am both uh, speaking to our ongoing habitual sins, and I'm also speaking to those sins my pastor in Lakeland used to call the shriek, puke, and run sins. I, I mean both those places where we sin regularly and we're not alarmed by it, like impatience, being irritable, stretching the truth, not delighting in the Bible, Etc. Etc. I mean those ongoing sins, but I also mean those places where we blow it big time. Those stories uh, that wouldn't just cause us a little shame and a little discomfort to tell uh, someone else about it. We we would be horrified at the thought that we had to tell someone else about it. Uh, I've been pastoring long enough to know that we all have these shriek, puke, and run stories. And so when I talk about sin this morning, I mean both, uh, the ongoing sins and the big sins. And the reason is because David means both. Uh, For example, this is true multiple places in the Psalter, but I'll just show you one. In the Hebrew, David uses the singular transgression in verse 1. He's speaking of something big. But then in verse 5, he speaks in plural ways and in ongoing ways, transgressions. And and so church history tells us that David actually wrote this psalm sometime after his shriek, puke, and run sin with uh, Bathsheba and Uriah. In the heading of Psalm 51, we're told that that psalm is the actual prayer of repentance that, that David prayed when, quote, Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone in Bathsheba. So, so Psalm 51 is his prayer of repentance. It's where David confesses his sins of abuse and adultery and murder. 
I think that would qualify as shriek, puke, and run. And commentators then believe that Psalm 32 is David's contemplation on that whole ordeal sometime later when he's able to talk about it and from it instruct us to repent quickly when dealing with sins, both ongoing sins and the massive failures that all of us, unfortunately, either have committed or will commit. But anyway, there there are three choices available to us when we deal with sin or sins. Just think logically with me. First, we can act like we aren't sinful and and act like we therefore have no need for forgiveness. Uh, Second, we can own that we are sinful, uh, but try to make up for the sin on our own. And third, we can own our sin and receive and rest in the forgiveness from God uh, that he gives in regards to sin to those who repent. So we've said it before, we'll say it again, it's worth repeating here, all of humanity, regardless of who we are, we can all be broadly assigned to three categories. First, there are the irreligious, those who say they don't believe in God, they don't believe in sin, they don't believe in guilt, and therefore, by definition, they have no need for divine forgiveness. Second, there are the righteous, or excuse me, major mispronunciation, there are the religious who believe in God and sin and guilt, but who do not believe in divine forgiveness by sheer grace. The religious are those who essentially believe that they have to do something to make up for their sin, and then they have to do something again to do something positive to earn God's favor. And finally, there are the faithful followers of Jesus, those who believe in God and sin and guilt, but who also believe and receive and rest in the forgiveness God gives in the gospel. If you turn your eyes to Psalm 32, you can actually see all three of these uh, in this psalm as David contemplates his experience. In verses 1 through 5, David is with the Lord contemplating repentance and forgiveness, and he states his thesis in verses 1 and 2. Blessed are those who don't lie about their sins. That's at the end of verse 2. They are forgiven. That's at the uh, beginning of verse 1 and a little bit into verse 2. And then David, in verses 3 through 5, shares his testimony about ways in which he tried to deal with his sin prior to giving it and repenting. He says in verse 3, basically I tried the irreligious route. I tried to ignore the conversation. He says, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away. We're going to talk about verses 3 and 4 in a bit, a little bit more, for, but for now just note that, that David at first tried to act like his sin didn't happen. He tried to avoid it. He, he tried to ignore it. He tried to, uh, to, to, to think that, that it didn't really matter uh, to his life. And then in verse 5, when actually talking positively about his repentance, when describing his repentance, David says, I acknowledge my sin to you. I confess my sin to you, meaning that he got off the irreligious path. And he said further in repentance, I did not cover my iniquity. And what that means is that there was a season where he tried to cover his iniquity, a season where David was religious. Uh, commentators will tell you that in the Hebrew, David is clearly and obviously making a reference uh, to Genesis chapter 3, where Adam and Eve were trying to deal with their sin. Uh, Even if you're not uh, uh, familiar with the Bible, maybe you know the story of what Adam and Eve did and the guilt and the shame that they felt after breaking God's law and eating the forbidden fruit. They sewed fig leaves together in an effort to cover themselves. The definition of religion is this trying to do something to yourself and for yourself to cover your failure and your shame. And so all three options are here. Being silent, being irreligious, where we act like we didn't do anything and we don't need forgiveness. 
trying to cover up, being religious, where, where we try to make up for our sin and deal with our own sins. And then there's repentance, where we, verse 5, acknowledge our sin to God, don't cover over our iniquity and failure, and say, I will confess my transgression to the Lord. You see, the Bible, if you're new to it or if you need to be reminded, is not about those who sin and those who don't sin. It's not about religion nor irreligion. It's about all of us being sinners and what we do with it. We can ignore it. We can try to pay for it. Or we can follow David's instruction and confess it and be free from it. So, so first, in this instruction on what to do when experiencing a low in life because of sin, David references the existence of these three options, but he says, listen, uh, let me give you a call to repentance. And then secondly, he says, let me, let me build a case for repentance. Let me build a case uh, for why this is your best option moving forward. Okay, and so he's going to give us uh, uh, three reasons uh, why we're going to want to choose repentance over religion and irreligion. Happiness, hiding place, and humility. The repentant receive a present happiness, a future hiding place, and increased humility. So first, happiness. And by the way, this is the main point of the entire psalm. If you had to say, what's the one point? It's happiness comes from repentance. Verses 1 and 2. Blessed are the forgiven. Blessed are those against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. So uh, Derek Kidner is a highly regarded uh, Old Testament scholar and an Old Testament theologian. And he writes this. The English word happy, a more exuberant word than blessed, is the proper opening to both of these verses. Happy are the forgiven. Happy is the one against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. We can know that blessed at least means and primarily means happy in this psalm because if you look down at verse 11, uh, you can see that not only does he mean happy when he say, says blessed, but you can know that this is the main po point of the entire poem. So in the chiastic structure of the poem, he starts and ends with this same idea. Verse 11 is going to reiterate what he said in verses 1 and 2. In verse 11, he says, gladness which is parallel to blessedness or happiness. As frivolous as it sounds to sophisticated and somewhat Presbyterian ears like ours, this psalm is primarily about being happy. Look at verse, uh, verses 3 and 4. This is David talking about his experience prior to repenting. Verse 3, when I tried irreligion, or when I tried ignoring my rebellion against God and how bad I hurt other people. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through groaning all day long. David is saying the guilt and the psychological turmoil was so overwhelming that all day long, he, and this is what the word actually means, he said, I roared like a lion trying to stay silent. He wasn't happy because he couldn't get away from what he'd done uh, for himself at the expense of other people. Uh, end of verse 4 continues but the physical, the emotional, the psychological description uh, of one who doesn't deal with their sin through repentance. He says, my strength was dried up. It literally means my vitality evaporated in the desert drought of summer. He, he is worn out inside and out because he's been groaning all day long with his guilt. And presumably he's worn out from trying to cover his own sins with good deeds and passionate promises to do better. He's just whooped. How often have I done this? 
How often have I believed that God's laws were keeping me from being happy? How often have I transgressed his laws in ongoing ways and in shriek, puke, and run ways in search of said happiness? Only to find myself exhausted from the vacillation between trying to act like it's not a big deal and placing the burden on myself to pay for it. I can tell you from experience, there is no happiness in either of these options. Like I said, we're going to look at the start of verse 4 in a moment, in a moment to, 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 to see uh, that it's more than this. But, but just think about uh, this happiness and this lack of happiness and how it's common sense. Just think from a human perspective. Without repentance, our hearts have to be filled with guilt and fear. Guilt, because, because as humans, we've been created to enjoy serving other people. We weren't created to objectify, use, ignore, and hurt other people. And so without repentance, we have no recourse for our guilt, whether we are willing to admit it or not. Without repentance and without understanding what repentance is, we we bottle up this cancerous guilt inside of our soul, and it has no release. Eventually, our sorrow and our sadness intensifies, and until we give in and repent, we will give in to various realities in an effort to numb and to silence the guilt. Further, when when we turn from irreligion to religion because we feel so bad, when we swear to and endeavor to do better, our hearts have to be filled with fear and anxiety. Have I done enough? Can I do enough? How much is enough? How much time's on the clock? Can I get a progress report? Can somebody tell me how I'm doing here? I mean, just think practically about what has to happen, what inevitably will happen in the human heart with irreligion and with religion and with repentance. Either exhaustion from guilt and fear or energetic exuberance with repentance. I know it's counterintuitive, but, but the psalm is saying there is happiness for the one who repents. The one who, who raises his hand and says, I blew it. Blessedness. It's counterintuitive, but it's obvious if you just think about it. Look at verse 1. Happy is the one whose transgression is forgiven. It's the word lifted or carried. Look at the middle of verse 5. I will confess, literally throw my transgression to the Lord. In repentance, we say, I'm not carrying around this guilt, and I'm not carrying around this shame anymore. I'm throwing it to you, Lord. Who's more happy? The one carrying his transgression around in his heart or the one for whom the Lord lifts his transgression and guilt out of him? Who's more happy? The one exhausted from trying to cover his sin and his failure? Verse 5. Or the one for whom the Lord covers his sins, verse 1. Who's more happy, the the one who holds sin against himself? Or the one, verse 2, against whom the Lord counts no iniquity? So on one level, it just makes sense. The repentant are more psychologically happy. But there's a whole other dimension to this. Look at verse 4. The lack of happiness in those who don't repent goes way beyond the realm of psychology and into the deep realms of the spiritual. For day and night, your hand... Talking to God was heavy upon me. What's he saying? He is saying that when followers of God choose irreligion and or religion, when we choose to ignore our sin or attempt to pay for our sin, God lays the heaviness of his hand upon us to cause us internal turmoil, to cause us to be exhausted, to in fact press upon us pain and sorrow and sadness. Why? So we cry, uncle, and repent. And so in repentance, we find happiness. 
Notice how it's God's hand upon David and not God's foot. God's not trying to crush him. He's trying to save him. This is incredibly important to note. In the Bible, it's often God's foot that crushes his enemies, but it's mighty hand that saves his people who were his enemies and sometimes still act like it. Like a surgeon who uses his hand and not his foot to wound but heal. God uses his hand to put pressure on the child who refuses to repent. But his hand is there to pull him out of the depth when and while he repents. A few questions on application before we move on. Might this text shed light on why we're not happy? Uh, To what extent is our lack of happiness due to us trying to ignore our sins? To what extent is our lack of happiness due to us knowing that we're sinners but refusing to receive God's grace and forgiveness? Can this text begin to be a diagnostic for us of the extent to which we actually receive that grace and forgiveness? Is God's hand heavy upon us because we're ignoring sins? Or maybe because we're trying to pay for our sins? Or think about this. Does this text motivate us to search for and root out ongoing sins that we're presently not alarmed by? If happiness is on the other side of repentance, might this text encourage us to become addicted, if you will, to repentance in regards to our, quote, minor sins? If we were convinced happiness was on the other side of repentance, we would be begging other people to join us in alarm over our ongoing sins. Secondly, and more quickly, hiding place. This is David's second reason in his case for repentance as being the path that we should take. Look at verses 6 and 7. Verse 6, Therefore let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. And so David has experienced, uh, having experienced God's grace and mercy, David is praying that God will let all of his people pray prayers of repentance before it's too late. David is praying that the repentant will, with him, find find in God a, a sufficient hiding place, listen to this, at the great and final judgment. The rush of great waters in verse 6 is a very common Old Testament refrain for the final judgment. Drowning, where waters surround, verse 7, is a common metaphor for hell in the Old Testament. Just read Jonah 2 this afternoon and you'll see that. David is praying, uh, prior to your final judgment, where you wipe evil off the face of the earth, let the godly offer prayers to you now when you may be found. And of course, you you know from the context that godly doesn't mean holy and pure and sinless. It means those connected to God because they trusted his mercy and repented. At the end of verse 6, David says that surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. When I first read that, I thought that the prayers wouldn't reach God. But if he was talking about God, he would have said, surely they shall not reach you. What he's saying is that the great waters won't reach or touch or strike the repentant. Why? Verse 7, you are a hiding place for the repentant. Again, nine times out of ten, the word surround in the Old Testament is going to talk about an enemy surrounding or a water surrounding those who are experiencing the final judgment. And he says, instead of water surrounding the repentant in the flood of the great judgment, the repentant are surrounded with great shouts of deliverance, joy, 
shouting gladness. He's talking about a worship service. Second reason to repent when dealing with sin. Uh, Because our ignoring of our sin won't make God's final judgment against sin go away. Our ignoring of our sin will not make God's final judgment against sin go away. And our own religious efforts to build our own hiding place against the rush of great waters won't work. Our little sandcastles of good works cannot withstand the incoming tide. Only the repentant acknowledge that God should judge them, unlike the irreligious. But only the repentant also acknowledge that God won't judge them because, verse 7, he is preserving them by his mercy. So now we've only seen two of the three reasons uh, in David's case for repentance, but so far it's pretty compelling to me. Uh, Happiness or sorrow, uh, (laughs) hiding place or drowning, and humility. Look at verses 8 and 9. So in verses 1 through 5, David contemplates the whole ordeal of sin and unrepentance and repentance. And then in light of his experience in verses 6 to 7, he's, he's praying that more and more people would repent. And then in verses 8 and 9, the Lord responds to David and then he responds to us. The, the you in verse 8 is singular. It's God talking to David. The command in verse 9 is plural. It's God talking to us. God says to David, I will instruct you and teach you in the way, the path you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. And then to us, verse 9, Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curved with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. And so God's hand pressed David into a low place and then lifted David out of that place as he repented. And now God says, My eye is upon you. He's inviting David into an intimate eyeball-to-eyeball relationship. He's inviting David into this place where God teaches and where David is humble and teachable. This is made clear in verse 9, God's command to us. In the Bible, the mule and to a lesser degree the horse are very stubborn animals. They only go where the owner wants them to go through control and pain and discipline. And God is saying to David and to us what is already clear from verse 4, I'm going to take you where I want you to go. You can either be humble and follow my lead eyeball to eyeball, Or you can be stubborn and be led through bit and bridle. Either way, if you're God's child, you're eventually going to go where he wants you to go. And David's saying, don't be like a horse or a mule. Repent and follow. How does repentance for the past make us humble and teachable in the future? Just think, when you go to God and say, I blew it. I've, met, I've made a big mess of it. I tried to deny it. I tried to ignore it. I tried to fix it. I don't have within me the capacity to do anything to make this right. And when you go to God and say, I blew it, help me. And God says, I, and when you go to him, you say, you say, I desperately need you. I desperately need grace and mercy and forgiveness. That's the only option in front of me. Lift the transgression, cover the sin. Don't count the iniquity against me. When you go to God and say that, God says, okay, you got it. And then God covers us and happies us with his grace and his mercy in our ongoing minor sins and in our shriek, puke, and run major sins. And when that is the foundation of the relationship, how can we be anything but humble and teachable moving forward? How can we again say to God, I don't think your commandments are going to make me happy. (laughs) He's like, I can either put my eye upon you or I can put my hand upon you. Your choice. 
And so in Psalm 32, David is inviting us to learn from his life. He calls us away from religion. He calls us away from irreligion, and he calls us to repentance. And then in my estimation, he provides a really convincing case for repentance. And then finally this morning, he tells us the cost of repentance. If you're new to the Bible, my guess is that there's two ideas in your mind right now. First, why don't more people choose the repentance option? It seems like a no-brainer. It's like watching Dora, and Dora asks you, which of these three paths should we take to Happiness Mountain? (laughs) The path with the crocodile? The path with scorpions on it? Or the path with the dancing monkey named Boots? Which one? (laughs) Click. Dancing monkey. I mean, if you're wondering why more people don't choose the path of repentance first, I agree with you, and I wonder the same myself. And then I often wonder the same about myself. But I'll tell you this, come back next week. We're going to actually study a prayer of repentance, not just a prayer about repentance, a prayer of repentance, and I think that's going to be illuminating. It just crushes our love for control and comfort and our pride. That's part of why we don't choose repentance more often. But second, I think all of us are thinking this. This is too good to be true. This can't possibly be true. There, there has to be some cost. There has to be some payment. That, that, I, I, again, I agree with you. I, all too often, I convince myself that the gospel is too good to be true, and I begin to live irreligiously or religiously. And inevitably, when I do that, and when I get back on my feet, or when God pulls me back onto my feet through repentance, I realize I forgot the price Jesus paid for my sins. I forgot the expense my repentance cost Jesus. Think about the story of Adam and Eve again. They tried irreligion for a while, breaking God's laws. They weren't happy, and so they tried religion for a while, trying to cover their guilt and their shame and their nakedness. And then God put weight on them. God turned up the heat on them. He, he played a divine game of hide-and-seek with them. They're hiding from him, and he strolls through the garden, calling out their name. What does God do when he finds them? What does God do when he discovers their sin? What does he do when he uncovers their irreligion and their religion? He does an awful lot, but of extreme importance is this fact. God killed an animal in order to clothe them and sufficiently cover them. And the dying animal showed that another one day would die in their place to truly cover their and our irreligion and our religion. On the cross, Jesus Christ, the man who is always teachable, always humble, always loving, never sinning. On the cross, Jesus Christ died in payment for our sin. He paid the cost for repentance. God counted our iniquity against him because, verse 1, he chose to not count it against us. The one who deserved to be happy was in the garden, a different garden, sorrowful to the point of death. The one who should have been clothed with royal robes was stripped naked on the cross so that we could receive not animal skins, but royal robes by grace through faith. On the cross, his hands were tied like this and his feet most likely were nailed behind the stake of the cross. His nakedness and his shame spread for everyone to see and everyone to mock. He had no ability to cover himself because he was dying for our sins. The father shrieked, vomited his wrath upon him, 
and ran away. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Let's pray. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abide.